right, why did the Democrats do better in the midterms than expected? We finally have someone who has the answer. So let's talk to him. Austin Allman works at The Intercept and he wrote a great piece about it called Democrats Rediscover Populism. Austin, welcome back. Thank you, I appreciate having me on, Cenk. No problem. So um, you say that there is a number of theories as to why the Democrats did better, and then you focus in on one in particular. So tell us the different theories uh, that people in DC have for why the Democrats did better than expected in the midterm elections. Sure, so I mean, the first one is obviously Dobbs um, and the effect that that had on the electorate, right? It was a reminder of growing radicalization in the Republican Party. And that that activated a lot of voters, especially in the middle, who who are leery of extremes. The second one would be obviously that you know January sixth, the aftermath, another reminder of Republican extremism, really being hammered in by a lot of a lot of candidates across the across the country, and especially in seats where you know people had actual control over election administration. So you saw that in Arizona, you saw that in Nevada, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but the other thing that I think people really are missing, and the theory that I dive into the most in my piece, is that Democrats ran, by and large, the most populist economic message that they've run in at least 20 years. And I think that you need a narrative that combines all three, especially in areas where there were not direct threats to people's liberties at the ballot box, whether, you know, if they're in New York, you know, abortion rights are pretty enshrined. Um, and so if you, you need something to explain the successes and failures in the different states beyond just those two uh, social issue theories. And uh, so I talk a lot about economic populism in the piece that you mentioned, and I assume we'll, we'll dive into it a little bit now. Yeah, so guys, every election of course is complicated. And, um, and so did abortion make a big difference? Yes, and it made it in specific places like Pennsylvania. Uh, and you could trace the exit polling, the results, etc. Uh, did the uh, stuff about democracy work? Actually, it did in a lot of places, especially against Secretary of States and against the most extreme Trump candidates. But it didn't work in all instances, especially when the uh, Republican was more moderate, as Austin explains in his piece, right? But the the populism piece, Austin, is the is the part that almost no one else is talking about. To the point where, honestly, I missed a lot of it. And I didn't see it until I read your piece. So for example, I thought one of the few predictions I got wrong, so yes, that snuck in a little bit of a humble brag there about the election. Although there's not much to brag about because I thought Democrats would do worse overall. But I thought Cortez Masto would lose in Nevada. But that's because I didn't know the populist ads that she was running. So tell us about that because that was interesting and surprising. Yeah, so the most viral ad of the Cortez Masto campaign, which you know she's a pretty standard Democrat. She's not centrist per se, but she's a mainstream liberal Democrat, and she ran ads just absolutely obliterating her opponent Adam Laxalt as a lobbyist, as the son of a wealthy political family, as this and that, as rigged by wealthy donors, et cetera, et cetera. I think the it was a minute long piece, and it was just. Devastating, and it was the exact type of ads that about a lot of us talk about wanting to see in, in left-wing media circles from candidates. Um, but it didn't draw a lot of the attention from national media who were covering the race, even though it was huge on the ground. And when you look at the numbers on just like channel views, etc., those were the ones that got heat and got traction. Yeah. So at the end, we'll get to whether they're actually going to do anything about any of this. But um, in terms of 
the people who ran correctly and the ones who ran incorrectly on this issue of populism. You had a couple like Katie Porter who are now in more red districts after redistricting. And she's more of a progressive Medicare for all, attacking the corporate executives in the hearings, etc. And then you had people who are more open to the corporate world, being euphemistic there, the Tom Malinowski's in New Jersey, etc. So what happened to those two different groups? Because if you watch mainstream media, you would think, oh, Malinowski and those guys, of course, won because they were centrist Democrats and the Porters, etc., lost because they were wild-eyed radical progressives. What happened in reality? Yeah, so I mean, it's a small sample size when we're talking about um, incumbents that lost re-election because most Democratic incumbents really did make it over the finish line. And you're especially talking small sample size when you're talking about Democrats that still represent Trump seats. There are only five. But even small sample size concerns aside, really, there's no way to look at who remains in Trump won seats in the Democratic Party and who lost this election and not say that there's an economic uh, explanation there. Right, so you had, uh, I believe, six Democrats that were incumbent Democrats that ran for re-election that lost. Every single member was a member of the New Democrat Caucus. So that's the corporate-friendly, by name, you know, by virtue, centrist, mealy-mouthed sorts of Democrats, um, and all of them came from that caucus. Now, some of them were drawn into districts that were just, you know, you were never going to defend them, no matter how good of a candidate you are. But some of them were in perfectly winnable districts. So um, I, I specifically focus on Elaine Luria in that piece. Elaine Luria. Is the only Democrat in the House who's from a swing seat who served on the January 6th committee. She made it a huge part of her campaign and she had a great foil for it. She had Elaine Kiggins, who was an election denier, a state senator with a bad history on abortion rights, etc. And she ran straight through with this type of candidacy. And she ran four points behind Biden and she lost. It was the second biggest underperformance among this group, except for Sean Patrick Maloney, which we've all heard about. And you know, if you're trying to parse for an explanation of why did she do so poorly, what happened? This was such a promising campaign. It ran on the messages that everybody is saying is the winning message. Well, in reality, what she had done a few months prior to all of this work on the committee is that she had helped Democratic leadership blow up the stock trading ban. She went on, you know, Punchable News's uh, interview tour. She called it bull. She said that she was questioned the motives of people that were in pushing for the ban, pushing for reforms in this area. You know, a key, easy. You know, low-hanging fruit populist reform, and she blasted it, and that ended up in Elaine Kiggins' ads. It ended up in debates, and really is one of the few clear explanations for her underperformance. So, when you've got the centrist not running as populist, they lost. Maybe they would have lost anyway, but they lost. When you had the Porters running on economic populism, even in relatively red to purple districts, they won. Uh, and I know every time uh, people in Washington tell me it's a coincidence, I'm beginning to believe that it might not be a coincidence. No, I, I agree with that. It's not a coincidence at all. So, I mean, Porter's seat was a tough one. She she ended up running ahead of of every other statewide elected Democrat. You know, she had ran ahead of Newsom. She ran ahead of Padilla. She ran ahead of just about everybody in a, in a tough year in in that uh, area. And it wasn't just her. Even even some of the people who aren't your traditional you know rah rah fiery populists. If they have that that piece of their message and their history, they still did well. And I think a great example of this is uh, in Ohio, Marcy Kaptur. She is the longest serving woman in House history now. With her reelection, she will be she will have earned that title. And she has always had this this populist Rust Belt streak that that, that comes in many forms. Whether it's opposing trade deals that have been really terrible for parts of the middle uh, and working class, whether that's signaling openness to things like Medicare for all. 
she's she's always been there, even if she's not all in. That's been a piece of her messaging, and her instincts are clearly there. And it's 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 enabled her to to win quite an, an interesting title as longest serving woman or representing Trump territory for for decades. Yeah, and so. In a sense, one of the things I was surprised by Austin was that they received permission to run these ads. And what I mean by that is usually what winds up happening is that they are getting their money from the donor class. And then the donor class does not like radical populism where they tell where you honestly and correctly point out the problems with the wealthy and the powerful. The wealthy and the powerful generally don't like that and don't like to fund that. So but in this case, the Democrats were not stopped from even like so-called centrist, moderate Democrats, in reality, corporate Democrats that take tons of donor money were not stopped from running those ads, which was interesting in and of itself. What do you think happened there? Well, so I did some reporting earlier in the cycle and and you won't hear me say nice things about the House Majority PAC and DCCC very often. But I think that this cycle, you're right to, to see that there was a bit of a more lax permission structure on these types of things. And even encouragement, you know, there was poll testing of some of the, the messaging around like price gouging from oil companies that came from the top. And I think part of it was just the, the dire straits of this cycle. You know, a lot of the Democratic, you know, more establishment figures, every two years, they, there's a narrative about how this is the most important election of your lifetime. And if you don't vote this time, we're going to lose everything, right? But I, th- I think this time they actually believed it, right? And so that, that, that belief in the importance of this election for the future of democracy was genuine. And it led people to, to realize that the polling numbers had always been the polling numbers. Progressive policies, especially populist economic progressive policies, have always been winners um, by, by any, any metric. Even, even the popularists in the party who, who sometimes warn against the left flank's excesses will admit that when it comes to basic issues like prescription drug reform, stock trading ban, um, things of that nature, the progressive position and saying it loudly and unapologetically is the way to go. Um, and I think that there was finally uh, what felt like high enough stakes for some of the people that are usually detached from some of the you know, basic realities of these policies to, to get on board. So in other words, they panicked and they're like, press the progressive button, otherwise we're gonna lose. They did press the button and they wound up doing a lot better. But Austin, doesn't that mean by definition, they can press that button anytime they like and they just choose not to. They did if they, and like that the people in charge of the Democratic Party even know that fact. That's why when they panicked, they pressed it. And so if they wanted to, they could run deeply populist campaigns and rout the Republicans. Yeah, I mean, that that, that certainly is, is a pretty solid takeaway. I don't necessarily have that nuance of a view of how, of how some of the establishment are responding to how their economic messaging did. But I sure hope that that's their takeaway, right? That they understand that this won for a reason. Um, you don't see candidates like Mary Peltola, you know, running as pro-fish, pro-choice, and frankly, nothing else. In Alaska, and not want to think, and not want to emulate that, right? You know, like a one-two winning message on social issues, abortion rights, and then two, like I'm going to protect you from corporate fisheries that are ruining the beauty of our of our home state. It's quite the knockout, and I think that um, there's going to be a lot of pressure going forward. I, I would hope, and I would think, to to give candidates that kind of space to take on corporate interests in their home state, in their home district, that are familiar to voters, and that really help. Set them apart and give them give them an on the ground um, enemy that they're that they're in combat with um, going forward. So I think that a, a good example of this is uh, 
in Pennsylvania, Connor Lamb's old seat um, was actually won by another of these populist progressives. Um, it's a dead even district. And uh, the, the incoming candidate there, Christopher Deluzio, is one of the most incredibly populist guys I've ever seen run a campaign. He had ads on television calling his opponent a corporate jagoff and saying that people like that making jobs in China or why you know his neck of the woods in southwestern uh, Pennsylvania are in the dire straits that they're in. And he won by a landslide and he's already making waves before he's even uh, made into Congress. You know, He had some fiery statements about the railroad union strike that was squashed by Congress just a few days ago or not a few days ago, but a couple weeks back. And he was saying things to the effect of don't ever expect me to break a strike in union territory, et cetera, et cetera. Already preemptively distancing himself from the party uh, to the left on economics. And Mary Peltola from Alaska was with him on that vote. She voted against adopting the agreement and said something much the same. So guys, when we do these interviews, if it's an article like Austin's, we'll always have the link in the description box. Make sure you check that and, and you read it uh, because this article is as good as I've seen about uh, what actually happened in these midterm elections. And if you watch or read corporate media, you'll never see the examples that were in Austin's piece. I, I certainly haven't seen it in anywhere in mainstream media. There's no question that populism played a huge role that was buried by corporate media. Uh, and Austin, I'll end on this, we're out of time already. But um, watch now, when some of these folks, if any of them are honest, it sounds like Deluzio uh, at least appears to be honest, and didn't run it as a gimmick, as I'm sure the Cortez Massos of the world did. If they go to actually try to do that stuff that they ran on in Congress, their number one opponent is not going to be Kevin McCarthy. It's going to be Hakeem Jeffries. I mean, because the Democratic leadership, have you seen, I'll end it on a question, have you seen any indication that Democratic leadership, Schumer, Jeffries, Biden, would actually do a single thing that's populist? Okay, I think that we had a technical issue, but I'm not sure because the answer would be the same. <laughs> okay, no, we didn't have a technical issue. You heard the question, <laughs> right? So, did you do you think that any of these Democratic leaders would do any of these things that they ran campaigns on? I don't think so. I don't think they'd do one of those things. I, you know, I'm not sure. Schumer seems to be a little bit more aligned and seems to seems to understand that you at least need to make some folks happy. Jeffries is an alarm bell for a lot of us. Um, and I think that there were a lot of progressives that felt like they didn't really have the space to say anything about his coronation. But we'll see whether or not they should have you know, made some of the space of their own. Okay, progressives in DC crack me up. They don't have the space to criticize Jeffries. Here, watch this. I just created all this space. Criticize him. Who cares? Who cares? Oh well, they'll say he's black or something. I don't care. Why do you care? You're black. Why do you say it? Who cares? So it's like Jesus Christ, man. You don't have to listen to your overlords. Just FYI, to any progressive in Washington, okay? Uh, yes, Hakeem Jeffries is a corporate douche. He will never do any of those things. That's my opinion, not Austin's. Austin, thank you for the piece. Uh, thank you for joining us. I appreciate it. I appreciate you having me on. Thanks, Jank. No problem. All right, uh, do we have rising terrorism in the country? And most importantly, where is it coming from? Uh, well, let's talk about it. Wajahat Ali joins us from, he's a senior fellow at the Western State Center. Waj, uh, welcome to the program. 
Hey, Trent, how's it going, man? Uh, two Muslim men with uh, multi-syllabic names, but you're gonna go. I'm gonna go with the monosyllable Waj uh, to match your chank today. Okay, sounds good. All right, so uh, has uh, terrorism increased in America, and where's it coming? Yeah, the number one domestic terror threat in America, Chank, is white supremacist terrorism. It's been this case for the past few years, but surprisingly, we haven't heard about it, and we're not talking about war on terror, the sequel, you know, terror harder because. The culprits of this terrorism represent, uh, unfortunately, I hate to say this, but this is the reality according to all the data and facts, uh, right-wing circles, an increasingly incestuous group, group of, of right-wing ecosystems uh, that are motivated by conspiracy theories that see the rest of us, especially you and me, Cenk, uh, people of color, black folks, women, and LGBTQ as invaders who are trying to replace and weaken, weaken quote unquote, Western civilization, which is code word for white people. <laughs> of course. Okay, and let's talk about uh, the degree to which it's happened. I mean, I see in your piece, or in a different piece, I should say, three times as many domestic terrorism investigations as five years ago. So mm. that is a lot of extra terrorism. Um, and it appears that they have a number of different categories. Um, and I was amused by one of them, which is animal rights and environmental uh, terrorism. Now, why would I be amused by any terrorism? Because I think that that's like leftover stuff from a different era. It's apparently less than 1% of the cases. Well, as I was reading that, I, I had the sense that they kept that category, even though there's almost nothing in it, just to be able to say, oh, both sides do it. Yeah, I mean, well, you know, it's not just that, but it's 2009, Daryl Johnson of the DHS, he published a report where he warned about the rise in right wing terrorism. Now, again, this is 2009, Chenk. Uh, that report was quashed. Internally, he had to go become a kind of a whistleblower. Spencer Ackerman, when he was at Wired, did a piece with him. Uh, Daryl Johnson later wrote a book, and he said there was political pressure from Republicans in particular because they realized that research, which warned again about the rise of domestic terrorism, the rise of right wing terrorism, made them and their movement look bad. So, all these alleged patriots, right, who fight for national security and care about the war on terror, and there were such hawks when it comes to black folks and brown folks and Poor folks, when it comes to their own team of many, let's just be honest about it, white conservatives who are committing these acts, they kept quiet, they quashed it. We also saw that the DHS under Donald Trump, according to a whistleblower, was told that they're gonna downplay the threat of white supremacist terrorism, the number one domestic terror threat in America, and upplay Antifa and BLM. So again, what we're seeing is this incestuous system, right? It's not outliers, Cenk. And what people need to realize is that this is part and parcel of the modern conservative movement. If you don't believe me and you think I'm just being partisan here, I give you the January 6th violent insurrection. A violent coup attempt, thankfully it was failed, that resulted in the deaths of five people. And the Republican National Committee, Cenk, I always wanna remind people this, called those violent insurrectionists ordinary citizens engaged in a legitimate discourse. So when you have the affirmation of a violent insurrection from the GOP and the RNC itself, and then you have the repetition of violent conspiracy theories, which our own FBI is saying, listen, QAnon has the power of radicalizing individuals. Deep state conspiracy theory has the power of radicalizing individuals. When the number three leader of the Republican Party, Elise Stefanik, is promoting deep state conspiracy theories, no wonder they're looking out for their own team. And unfortunately, there are extremists and terrorists on that right wing team right now. 
Yes, uh, well, I know you go on mainstream media a lot. You don't have to convince anybody in this audience. We already do the facts, so, and we're not uh, scared of the right wing like everyone in corporate media is. And so, yes, it's overwhelmingly right wingers. Overwhelmingly, I'm not talking about bias. I'm not talking about perspective. I'm talking about facts. The facts are that almost, uh, well, let's put it this way: the great majority, at least eighty percent of the domestic terrorism in this country, according to the FBI, comes from right-wing extremists. So it's absolutely clear. And by the way, it's not so Trump wanted to emphasize Antifa and BLM as you're talking about, but it was Obama who was scared in 2009 and afraid that Rush Limbaugh right. and Fox News had criticized them. So he backed away from a report prepared under George W. Bush. So they keep you know, being afraid to call it what it is. In fact, well, let's talk about the National Defense Authorization Act. It just passed well over $800 billion. Yet, we haven't been attacked from outside the country since arguably 9-11, right? So that's now been 21 years, right? But we have right-wing terrorists attacking us and killing citizens in acts of terrorism pretty much nonstop. So... Do we have a sense of proportionality as to the threats here? Shouldn't we be spending $800 billion to counter right-wing extremists and not on defense, which just goes to Lockheed Martin executives' salaries? Look, dark humor here, it's good to be a white terrorist. Uh, I mean, can you imagine if you and me, Cenk, I mean, if you and me just decided to take a bunch of our brown and black friends with Muslimly sounding names and go to the US Capitol and just protest. Right and speak in Turkish and Arabic, no weapons. Uh, about five thousand of us. Suppose we just did that peacefully. There would be chalk lines. I can't even imagine a bunch of black and brown folks doing January sixth. And God forbid if that ever happened. Like I said, there would be war and terror to terror harder. I mean, they would crack down. They already did this in the post. War and terror climate, people forget that there was a Muslim registry called Ansirs. Thousands of innocent immigrants were deported. There was surveillance against Muslim communities. Those who not just were Muslim, Chenk, but Muslimi, including Sikh Americans, got killed by white supremacists, right? So our communities were the focus of like unrelenting pressure. And we've really felt the boot of law enforcement and DOJ on our necks. But right now, as you know, just tonight, uh, TPM, Talking Points Memo, released thousands of texts that they gathered from Mark Meadows. Uh, and there were elected officials or Republicans who were part and parcel of these violent insurrectionists who were asking you know, uh, Mark Meadows to pretty much go along with the coup. We also saw Ginny Thomas, the wife of Clarence Thomas, a sitting Supreme Court justice who still to this day believes in the big lie and tried to use her pressure and influence to uh, promote a coup. And yet nothing has happened to them. No accountability, no prosecution. So there is a double standard and there is a lack of proportionality due to whiteness. And also, I'm glad you mentioned it, every single institution, including Democrats historically, has bent the knee to bad faith right wing pressure. And the question is, why does the majority tolerate the terrorism from the right wing? Why do we allow ourselves to be victimized by these people? And the last thing I'll say in the past few months, you've seen the rise in stochastic terrorism, Chenk. And stochastic terrorism is when the right wing in particular uses mass media to target certain individuals and groups that results in random but statistically probable acts of violence. Poll workers, elected officials, doctors, hospitals, educators, all people and LGBTQ community, all people and groups who have been targeted by Tucker Carlson and the right wing. And we sit there and allow ourselves to get terrorized. Why? 
Yes, and look, it just arguably happened again. Today we covered the story of Marjorie Taylor Greene saying that if me and Steve Bannon had planned January 6th, we would have come armed. That's a cue to her audience and her followers. Now remember, the next time you confront Democratic politicians and politicians you don't agree with, make sure you have a weapon with you. That's just, and Matt Gates has talked about your Second Amendment rights in regards to uh, politicians that they don't agree with. Uh, Madison mm. Cawthorn has done the same. They're constantly agitating and instigating uh, violence, uh, very much on purpose. And by the way, I mean, as one of our viewers pointed out, it was almost like a OJ Simpson-like speech. Now, if I had planned January 6th, <laughs> yeah. okay, except certainly Steve Bannon did, and Marjorie Taylor Greene did partially. Um, but but to your point about January 6th, by the way. There was the very first thing we said on TYT. If they were Black Lives Matter protesters, they would have been, it would have been a massacre. Mm. And if it was Muslim protesters that stormed the Capitol Mm. and were chanting, hang Mike Pence, where's Nancy Pelosi? We're gonna hang her and kill her, right? I don't know that anyone in the crowd would have survived. I think they might have killed them all. And yeah, yeah, we we, we would have had dead bodies, man. There would have been. I always, I mean, we need dark humor for dark times. I said there'd just be lots of chalk lines. You and me would be a chalk line. And let's not forget, Marjorie Taylor Greene said at that gala, it was not just some you know rinky dink place. This was the part and parcel of the GOP. This was a gala with Marjorie Taylor Greene and people from VDare, one of these extremist right wing white nationalist sites. He was there. The founder was there. You know, Jack Posobiec. I don't know if I pronounce his name correctly. I don't care. One of the leading conspiracy theorists, he was there. She said we would have been armed. Well, guess what? They were armed, Chenk. They were armed. They were armed with flagpoles. Some people had guns. Some people brought pepper spray and nooses with the intention of hanging and assassinating both Nancy Pelosi and Mike Pence. And the fact that to this day that they are still seen as ordinary citizens and some Republicans call them you know, heroes and Paul Gosar calls Ashley Babbitt a violent extremist who was radicalized by QAnon, by the way. The same violent conspiracy theorist that now Trump promotes on Truth Social, she's now seen as a hero as well. What we're dealing with is a radicalized and weaponized movement. And again, I realize when people hear me or you, they might say, "Oh, it's these lefties or these people are progressive." But I've tried to just point out a very sober case here, using their own words, taking them literally and seriously. When they're literally and literally telling you their plot, and they're telling you that they want to kill you and attack you and overthrow. Uh, uh, this uh, democracy, a flawed democracy, but democracy nonetheless, then do we not call that terrorism? And since we have a history of attacking brown people and black people for war on terror and tough on crime, why do these criminals who are openly doing a coup, an ongoing coup, get away scot-free? Yeah, now the last part of the double standard is you mentioned after 9-11, tons of Muslim individuals and groups were surveilled, including mosques, including Muslims at a university. My nephews were going to Rutgers. We found out later that Giuliani had gone outside of his jurisdiction to spy in on Muslims going to Rutgers, so etc. Right? So they get a standard of, I do anything you want to them. Who cares about their goddamn civil rights, right? And who cares that we don't have any evidence that they've done anything wrong, right? Just enter their houses of worship and and do all the surveillance. Now, on the other hand, we have overwhelming evidence that there's right wing extremism, and it is. Tripled recently, right? And when we say, hey, can you investigate not on their right wing ideology, but the fact that these guys are saying, yeah, I can't wait to grab my gun and kill somebody, we don't we often, 
I guess what I'm asking about Waj is the gaslighting. So the mm. FBI seems to be tracking it down. Do they have the same? Do they also have a double standard? Yes, it's much harder to investigate a white right wing extremist than a Muslim or someone on the left, etc. Right? But it seems to me that corporate media is one of the biggest culprits. That they just yeah. are super reluctant to call white right wing extremism what it is. Look, I've been calling this movement a fascist movement, and finally, finally, finally. Just a couple of months ago, you know, Joe Biden and Democrats came around and called it semi-fascist. And once he called it semi-fascist, he got the the feedback that the base and the majority said, "Yes, thank you for calling it for what it is." And then he gave that robust defense of democracy speech where he called them out more. I think he could still go further. You saw with Donald Trump, Cenk, that this man was a living, breathing racist. He behaved like a racist. He piled around with racists. He promoted racist talking points. Did they call him a racist? No. They said racial trip-ups, right? Racial flare-ups. Uh, despite having a history of racism. So Donald Trump being a racist isn't a racist. A white nationalist isn't a white nationalist, right? New York Times just a couple of days ago did that <laughs> that analysis piece where we're still trying to figure out Elon Musk's politics. And Elon Musk is like, hey, let me just tweet out my politics, my white nationalist politics. And they're like, hmm, I wonder whether or not he's racist. So this reluctance of corporate media and all of our corporate institutions to call out an active radicalized threat is, is part and parcel of the problem. We have to name it. If you want to truly confront it, and words also matter. Trust me, those of us who got called and still get called terrorists just for being brown skinned, we know how words matter. But this is where words really do fit the the the, the definition of what these people are doing right now. It's a radicalized, weaponized movement that is committed to terror, stochastic terrorism, and actual terrorism that took place on January 6th. They're going after our poll workers, our doctors, our educators, elected officials, and you mentioned Paul Pelosi. The the husband of Nancy Pelosi and the person who tried to kill him was radicalized by conspiracy theory. And I just want to say this: back in the day, with you and me, Chank, we're old enough. Our daddies and our granddaddies, Republican Party, they would have lowered the temperature. Modern GOP, they followed up that conspiracy that radicalized him with another homophobic conspiracy. This is what we're dealing with. One hundred percent. It's actually super obvious. Once you get past the veil of corporate media that softens everything the right wing does and amplifies anything that's slightly off about the left wing. It's I think the corporate media is the one of the biggest problems in driving this incredible double standard because they oh, I don't want to offend my right wing viewers, I might lose ratings. Whereas, hey, there aren't that many Muslims in the country. We could kick their ass all day long. We're not going to lose any ratings. In fact, we'll gain ratings. So that's just the reality of it. All right, Wajahat Ali writing at the Daily Beast and is a senior fellow at the Western State Center. Thank you for joining us. We appreciate it.